exploits. So we thank you for the exploits in the name of Jesus. We love you, Father. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning with the creation story. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Folks, the Bible tells us, gives us a clear picture of how the worlds were created, how this world was created. It tells us that in the midst of the void, God spoke and said, let there be light. Now, I think one thing that's escaped us for many years has been the realization that God, when he spoke, he made a sound, and that sound produced light. I want to read you a quote by Albert Einstein. Here's what he said. He was a very famous intellectual. He was a Jewish individual, but uh, we don't have any record or assurance that he got saved before his death. But here's something he said. He said, we are slowed down sound and light waves. He's talking about how man was created. We are slowed down sound and light waves, a walking bundle of frequencies tuned into the cosmos. We are souls dressed up in sacred biochemical garments, and our bodies are the instruments through which our souls play their music. I want to talk to you this morning about the importance of our words. The Bible instructs us that one of the things that God made clear to mankind from the beginning, and it had to have come when he was talking with Adam in the cool of the garden before the fall, I can imagine that some of those conversations were... Well, what? How would we describe them? Astounding? Informative? I'm certain that Adam had a lot of questions. He was a man of, well, to put it mildly, great intellect because he had the mind of, of God himself. And some of the things that were discussed and talked about, I'm sure would be mind-boggling to us today But the Bible tells us the power of the word of God was such that the word that God spoke framed, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, framed these wor this world, this natural world that we live in. Now, science has told us and has proven to us that everything around us is in constant motion. This pulpit, that's solid wood, is moving. The cells and the electrons and the protons and whatever else, I'm not real up on my physics terms, but those things that make up this pulpit are cells in continuous motion. There are sound frequencies that we cannot hear, but we know they exist. The power of God's word is such that it keeps us, and the, the Bible speaks of being kept by the power of his word. It provides for us in any and every way we know that the earth is revolving around the sun. 
and medical science or, or physical science tells us that that rate of traveling that the earth is engaged in spinning around the, the sun is a little bit more than a thousand miles an hour. We are moving at a thousand miles an hour right now. The Bible is given to us to provide for every, any and every area of our lives. I want to bring out a couple of scriptures to you as we talk about the importance and the power of God's word. Joshua chapter 1. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, and thou and all these people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and, the Lebanon, and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the lands of the Hittites, and unto the great sea going toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear to their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law, these words, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Joshua is taking over for Moses as the leader of the children of Israel. And God tells him three times in these nine verses of scripture to be courageous. To have courage, to be courageous. And then he tells him what will be the, the source of his courage, and that is to meditate or to speak God's word. What does that look like? This book of the law, these words shall not depart out of thy mouth. Well, for something not to depart out of your mouth, you have to keep saying it. Because once you speak something, it's, it's out, it's gone from you. Those words, those sound vibrations have left your lips. So the only way you can keep them from departing from your mouth is to keep saying them. And folks, that's one of the greatest mysteries, the greatest unknowns in all of the church throughout the history of mankind. There is such a small percentage of people that are born again, people that have been saved and brought into the family of God, maybe even being used by God in ministry positions. But there's such a small percentage of people in the body of Christ that understand the importance of the words that we speak. Now, Jesus would have understood it. So when Jesus came to the earth, he knew the importance of words so let's look at him to see how he incorporated this or acted on this in his life. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That's a little, it's not a bad translation, but it's not the best translation. The, the way that it's translated makes it seem like the reason God led him into the wilderness was for the purpose of being tempted of the devil. 
But the, the devil came to tempt him at the end of the 40 days that he was out there. He wasn't just wasting time until the devil came. His purpose for going into the wilderness was to spend time with God and separate himself for the substitutionary work that he would be doing for, the, for those that received him and, and believed that he was, was the Messiah. So God led him into the wilderness for a much greater purpose than to be tempted of the devil. Now at the end of the time that he spent there, fasting and praying, then the devil came to him and tempted him. That may not seem like a big difference to you, but it, it, it irritates me every time I read this because it makes it seem like God's purpose was to tempt him with the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward uh, hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. First thing we know about Jesus right out of the gate is the importance of the words, the, the priority that he places and the understanding that he places on the power of the word, the, the power of the spoken word. There were two other things that the devil tempted him with, and each time Jesus answered with the same thing, it is written. It is written. How did Jesus know that it was written? Well, the only way he could know would be by meditating in the word of God, just like God instructed Joshua to do. In other words, Jesus, before he ever entered his ministry, he spent about 33 and a half years here on the earth, as we are, are able to calculate. And he didn't begin his earthly ministry until he was 30. So for 30 years, he's put effort, priority upon the word of God to build it into his spirit. To build it into who he is. Folks, the Bible will change you if you'll let it. And a lot of the things that we struggle against and try to change in the flesh can easily be changed by just simply meditating and speaking God's word. We were talking with this last week. We met up with some missionary friends that we have, and they've been affected vastly by the COVID restrictions overseas and so forth. So they've had to come back to the States for the better part of the, of the last two, two and a half years. And one of the projects they're involved in is the translation of Brother Hagen's books into different languages. They do most of their missions work in um, Europe, some in the Middle East and some in Africa as well, but mostly Europe. And they were telling us that there were 50 countries in Europe, 50 European countries. And of those 50 countries, there are 34 different languages. And so they're attempting and have been working for several years on translating these books of Brother Hagen's into these 34 different languages. Getting somebody to translate those has been the major problem. And people, personnel is always the problem. The biggest problem any ministry is going to have. But they've come upon situations where they've realized the importance of the translators, not just knowing the language, but knowing the message. The Bible tells us to look not at the things that are seen, but to look on the unseen things. To keep our eyes on the unseen rather than the seen. How is an unsaved translator going to understand anything about the unseen? So you can see the dilemma that they have. And God's bringing them people as they need them and as they have, as they have the, the finances to do the projects. But my point is simply this. How in the world is the body of Christ supposed to do this works of Jesus if we don't understand the same priority or the same importance of the words that we speak? 
Jesus was equipped when the devil came to him. He was ready. Empowered by the word of God. And he answered the temptation of the devil simply by quoting the word of God as his strength and as his source. God's word not only created the world, but it sustains the world. God's word not only recreated you and me, but it sustains us if we'll give it the place that it deserves. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, tells us about Jesus' first miracle. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they'd wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, folks, Jesus has just been baptized by John in the Jordan River. He has selected his disciples, at least a few of them, and they go to this wedding in Cana of Galilee. Apparently, it was some relation, some relative of Jesus, or certainly his mother, because she is in a position of providing and serving at this wedding feast. And so when they come into a problem, and the problem was they ran out of wine, she immediately goes to Jesus. Now, I've got some experience with moms, my mom, trying to push me into doing things that she wanted me to do. I think that's just a mom thing. I don't think there's any reason or, or, or it would be beneficial for us to criticize them because that wouldn't work anyway. But moms always know what to do. If you don't know that for sure, just ask them. But Mary says something that in my estimation is just astounding, staggering. She goes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? And then she makes a statement that's really hard for us to comprehend. She says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She's never seen him work a miracle, at least not with the anointing that came on him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. But there's something about her experience. There's something about Mary's experience with her son, who's now 30 years old, that causes her to realize and recognize that his words make a difference in trouble or difficult situations. For her to say whatever he tells you to do, do it. He's pretty much just already just told her, this is none of my business. But for the sake of his mother, perhaps, God impresses him upon him what to do. Now, folks, if God, if Jesus' words before he entered into his ministry, the first 30 years of his life, if his word didn't have some special place, why would she give attention or tell the servants to give attention to what he tells them to do? I've got a great relationship with my mom. And she's told me things all of my life to encourage me and to help me and whatever. But she's never told anybody else that whatever I say, do it. 
That's just off the charts. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. I wonder what she's seen take place as a result of his words that caused her to, to give that charge to the servants. Now, we don't have any record of anything that was, that was done. We don't have much of a record of Jesus' early life anyway. We do know that at age 12, he got left behind in Jerusalem after his family went to celebrate one of the feasts. And when they went back several days later and found him, he was sitting in the temple discussing with the rabbis. It doesn't say it was the high priest, but you might expect the word to have traveled after a few days. But he's sitting there with them answering questions that they have, that they're asking, and asking them questions that they can't answer. That's not bad at 12 years old. So I wonder what happened in his, early, in his early life that caused his mother to have such confidence in his words. Folks, I'd like that to be said of me now. And I'm 60-something. <laughs> I have to do the math. Let's see. I'm 55. I'm coming on 67 years old. Now, in times past, I would have responded. <laughs> but I'm a lot better at walking in love now than I used to be. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's good instruction for life, for us. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Wonder what she saw. Wonder what she'd experienced. Whatever it was or the combination of the different things that she saw gave her complete confidence in his words. Gave her complete confidence that his word changes things. Was she expecting him to turn water into wine? How could she have the expectation of the faith for that if she hadn't seen other things happen throughout his life where other things were changed or created or supernaturally stretched? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. She recognizes that he has placed a high priority on the operations of, of his words. You remember Numbers chapter 13? The greatest failure in the history of the world beyond the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. It tells us that Moses brings them to the edge of the promised land, just on the other side of the river Jordan. And he chooses one person of each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go spy out the land. God's already promised them the land. He told them that the land belongs to other people, but that he would dispossess them and give Israel the promised land. So in verse 17, Numbers 13, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. And what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad. And what cities there be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds. And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether it be good, whether there be wood therein or not. And be of ye of good courage and bring forth the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first striped grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin and to Rehob as the men came to Hamath. And as they ascended by the south and came upon Hebron, where the children of Anak were, 
I'll let you pronounce those for yourself. And when they came into the brook of Eschol, they cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bare it between two upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook Eschol because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. Now, folks realize that they're putting one cluster of grapes on a pole between two people. If these were just small grapes, small bunches, then they could just put it in a basket and carry it. But they're carrying this thing between two guys. This is a result or the fruit of the land that they've never experienced. Nothing like this. And they returned from searching the land after 40 days, and they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel into the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land which thou sentest us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we, and so, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now notice before we go any further in the story, of these 12 people, we have the opinion of 11 of them. 10 of them came back and brought an evil report and said, we can't take the land because the, the people are stronger than we are. The walls around the cities are too great. And they witnessed these things with their eyes. And as a result of, the, of what they witnessed, they allowed those circumstances to dissuade them from the truth of God's word. But Caleb, one of the 12 spies as well, said, let us go up and take the land for we are well able to overcome it. Now what makes Caleb think that they're strong enough to do this? Well, it's only been the last two, and a two, two or two and a half years since they saw the plagues of Egypt culminating in the firstborn, death of the firstborn and experiencing the first Passover. It took them about two and a half years to get from Egypt to this location where they are just over the Jordan River from the Promised Land. But what I'd like for you to see first and foremost is the circumstances will have an effect on you based on what you decide. Caleb witnessed the same experience, same circumstances, same walls, same strong armies. He saw everything that the others, the ten, saw. But he didn't let, it, he didn't let those circumstances take away from the God that was with them. Now we find out a little bit in the next chapter that Joshua who was one of the 12 spies as well joined with Caleb in expressing his belief that they were able to take the land chapter 14 and all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and the people wept that night and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron and the whole congregation said unto them would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? 
And they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Now you see that word if? First word in the verse. There are four different words in Hebrew that are translated if. The first of the four, and by far the most common use, literally means since. It's not, answering, it's not asking the question, it's answering the question. Here where the King James says, if the Lord delight in us, he's already made that determination. Since the Lord delights in us. Well, now, if the Lord hadn't delighted in them, why would he have brought them through the, the ten plagues of Egypt? If the Lord didn't delight in them, then why would he have sent them to the people of Egypt after the death of the firstborn took place, which they were exempt from because of the Passover? Why would he have spoiled the people on their behalf? The Bible says that the people of Israel left Egypt with silver and gold. And it tells us that they literally spoiled the Egyptian people. Meaning they took most, if not all, of their riches and gold and silver and such. If the Lord didn't delight in them, then why would he have healed the whole nation of people, the millions of people, or the, those that were sick among the millions of people that were led out of Egypt? If the Lord didn't delight in them, why would he have drowned Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea after they came after them? And Pharaoh changed his mind and came out against them to kill them. If the Lord had not delighted in them, then how is it when they came to the waters of Mara, which were bitter or perhaps poisonous, and they had nothing to drink, why would he have shown Moses the tree to throw into the midst of the waters and purify them. There have been other things that he has done on behalf of these people. And Caleb and Joshua recognize that each of those things that he did for them and did on their behalf was proof that God does delight in them. So they're not asking a question. They're not saying, let's go and attack these people and see if God will help us. They've made this determination. They've taken the results that God said that they would have. And they've allowed it to form their opinion of God and who he is and what he does. Since the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us, their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us, fear them not. Now up to this point in time, apparently it's still not too late for them to change their position. The congregation wept all night because of what the ten spies had told them. But when the next day comes around, they're still in hysterics. They're still talking about getting somebody else to lead them and take them back to Egypt. Isn't it amazing how so many times people, rather than believing God, would rather be in a position of bondage? That has astonished me for the whole of the time that I'm in the ministry. I've seen situation after situation where people would rather be in bondage than believe God. Well, now they're in a turning point. For Joshua to say only rebel not against the Lord is an indication that it's not too late to turn around. It's not too late for them to take possession of the promised land. Verse 10. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. 
Now they've crossed the line. They've made their choice. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. I'm going to skip down. Well, let me read another couple. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will these people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have shown among them? Joshua and Caleb have already come to that place. But apparently they're the only ones that have. I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Here's God telling Moses, step back. I'll do away with these people and start over with you. Now the Bible tells us that Moses interceded for the people and kept the Lord from destroying them through his prayer But from this point forward, they're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness, wandering from place to place, millions of them, growing in number by the day. I wonder if there ever came a time where Moses thought back to this point in time and said, I wish I'd taken God up on that offer. So he intercedes for God, intercedes for the people with God. Verse 20, and the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Verse 27, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. As truly as I live. Notice that phrase, as truly as, is in italics. But it's talking about making a reference to the life of God. Well, how does God live? He lives eternally. And unchangingly. So where he says as truly as I live. Another translation says it's the oracle of God. Now an oracle is an unchanging. And eternal law. So God is saying. This is how it works. And this is how it always works. As truly as I live. Eternally and unchangingly. As they have spoken in my ears. So will I do unto them. As they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Well, what did they say? They said they'd rather die in Egypt. Well, that's too late. They've already left Egypt. But they say we'd be better off if we died in the wilderness. And God said, okay. According to your words, be it unto you. This was a statement that Jesus made countless times in his ministry on the earth. Over and over again, he'd say, according to as thou hast believed, so be it done unto you. Well, why does he say that about faith? Because Jesus explains that faith is the expression of our words from the inner man. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Folks, you have what you say. You have right now what you say or have said. If you want to change what you have, change what you say. Now remember Mary, the mother of Jesus, whatever he says unto you, do it. Jesus seemed to understand the importance of the words that we speak. Now, folks, everybody in this story got exactly what they said. 
exactly what they said. The children of Israel died in the wilderness over the next 40 years. The 10 spies died that day. Or really, I guess it was the next day. Their lives were snuffed out because they led the children of Israel into unbelief, into their own unbelief. It would have been acceptable and maybe even respectable. I think we could have respected them if they'd said, guys, we've never seen anything like the walls around this city. And I'm not sure how I feel about going in and attacking these folks because they look a lot stronger than us. But Pharaoh's army looks stronger than us too. And so if we're going to make it, if we're going to take possession of this promised land, God's going to have to really do something big. I could respect that position, couldn't you? But no. They had to take sides against God. The power of your words will dictate what you have or don't have in this life. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then was brought unto him one that was possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed them, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? In other words, people were convinced by the healing and deliverance of this guy that Jesus must be the, the, the Christ, the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? Folks, notice that Satan has a kingdom. That kingdom is an earthly kingdom. That kingdom is in opposition to the kingdom of God and all the healing and blessings and benefits that the Bible counts as part of God's kingdom. If you want to know what God's kingdom is supposed to look like, all you have to do is go back to the book of Genesis and look at the creation. At the end of six days, he rested on the Sabbath. At the end of the sixth day, he made an end of all the things that he created. So at the end of six days, the earth was what he wanted it to be. Now, folks, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament several different places that God doesn't change. My favorite is where God says, I am God, I change not. James chapter 1 verse 17 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God only not changes, never changes, but it's not even in his I don't know what word I'm looking for here it's not even in God's prerogative to even think about changing the shadow of changing is not even possible with him so when God made the earth and he equipped it with everything that he intended for mankind to have and then put Adam in the middle of it and gave him authority over the works of his hands there was no sickness there was no lack there was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind now to, for somebody to say that God's will has changed and that now he wants people to be sick so he could teach them lessons or whatever goofy other, uh, other goofy explanation they would give to it. God never changes. 
Jesus described or defined the, will of the kingdom of God in what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, we know in heaven there's not any sickness or disease and there's no lack there. Just the same way that he made the earth. Now man messed it up when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and fell. And at that point in time, Satan's kingdom began to rule over the earth. And sickness and disease and poverty and any and every other bad thing that we know of or could think of began to appear and operate here in this earth. But that doesn't mean that's why that's the way God wants it to be. God made it the way he wanted it to be. Man messed that up. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Or else how can one enter a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man? And then would he spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scatters abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be given, shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. Folks, the example that he gives us of this is where people were calling the work of God the work of the devil. And that's a blasphemy that will not be forgiven. It doesn't necessarily cost a person his salvation. But there's a big difference between spiritual death and unforgivable sins. The only sin that somebody would commit that would cost them their eternity is rejecting Jesus. But there are those that reject Jesus that speak against the Holy Ghost. Now what does it mean that there are unforgivable sins or unpardonable sins? It means those are sins you have to answer for when you get to heaven. I imagine the line's going to be pretty long up there. So that's one cue I'm going to skip. <laughs> now certainly there are things that are said in ignorance that God wouldn't hold against you for eternity. The mercy of God would prevail way beyond anything that we think of. Yet this is the truth that Jesus told us. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 32, and whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by its fruit. O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and, bringeth, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof, thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Folks, if your words carry your eternal place, your eternal location, then what could be more important than the words that we speak? Jesus goes further than that, saying that we should make a decision once and for all to speak only those things which are good. And notice how they come. They come from the, the treasure or the deposit that's been made in your heart. 
In other words, meditating in the word of God like Joshua 1.8 says. Building the word of God into our heart to prepare ourselves against the temptation of the enemy like Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. Either make the tree good and bring good fruit or make it evil and bring forth evil. The thing that disturbs and confuses people is because they speak, one, speak good words on one hand and evil words on the other hand. Now, folks, this has an eternal application for us. We should, at every opportunity when we see the importance of God's words and the place of priority that he places upon his own word. These are decisions that we need to make. And they're not decisions to make over and over again. They're one-time decisions that we make when we see an area in our life, perhaps, that we've allowed the devil to deceive us into talking against, speaking against God's word. But the bottom line is, we should never allow any part of our lives to be spoken of contrary to the word of God. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the last week of his life. He passes by a fig tree that looks like it's fruitful but isn't. It's just got leaves, no fruit. And Jesus curses it and says, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter. And his disciples heard it. And in Mark chapter 11, verse 21, Peter calling to remembrance said unto him, Master, Behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Now Jesus takes the implied question that Peter brings up. When Peter draws his attention to the tree that's been dried up from the roots, they remembered that was the tree that he cursed. Jesus remembered it to be the tree that he cursed. And Jesus explains that it was through the operation of this simple thing called faith that affected this change in the tree. His word's still good. This might be one of those situations that we could relate back to Mary at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. This might not be something that she would bat her eyes at she may have seen this kind of thing happen many times during Jesus life before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost but Jesus explains it to the disciples and therefore to us Jesus answering said unto them have faith in God for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Notice Jesus' explanation is all about words. The kind of faith that removes unfruitful circumstances from your life is very simply the spoken word, the words that we speak from our heart, from our inner man, Faith changes things. Now notice back again in verse 23. He doesn't mention the tree. He talks about a mountain. Now folks, the reason that mountain is there is because of the sound and light waves that God originally spoke in creation. Physicists tell us that the universe is expanding that there was an impact, a beginning impact or explosion 
that began, but the universe is still expanding. And the further away you get from earth, the faster things are moving away. The word of God is still at work. The first things God said are still at work. Now, what does God care more about? The expanse of space or the people that are his children? And if God's word concerning the universe is still at work, still progressing, still working, how much more shall his word work for you and me? Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Jesus said, you mean that thing that's just sound waves, sound and light waves? Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Folks, realize and notice in this verse 23 that the word say is in this verse in some form three times. And the word believe is there once. Most people think the problem is in the area of your belief. Most people think, and we probably hear more teaching on faith, the belief from within than any other thing. But the reality is we're going to have to spend three times more time on the confession part, the speaking part, as we do the believing part. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. So the prayer of faith is the prayer that believes it receives when it prays. The prayer of faith that heals the sick is the prayer that believes what it receives, believes that it receives at the point in time that they pray. It's not praying and expecting God to do something. It's praying and taking for granted that God has done something. He goes on in verse 25, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He's showing us that unfaithfulness is the number one hindrance to our faith working. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 28, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Notice people were astonished at Jesus' doctrine, his teaching. It doesn't say they were astonished at him. Notice in verse 29, here's why they were astonished. He taught them as one having authority. Notice the word one is in italics. That means the translators added it. Without it, it says he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. This phrase, as having, is significant. The word as is a preposition that deals with the how of something. The word having is a word that means to hold. So if we read it with a literal translation, it sounds like this. The people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Now the scribes were the ones that would teach that man had no authority, that man was subject to the whims and the ideas of God. Everything was God-centered. Everything was God-dependent. If God didn't, if God wanted something to happen, then he'd make it happen. And if it didn't happen, it's because he didn't want it to happen. We got a lot of scribes in the body of Christ today. 
But notice what Jesus taught. He didn't teach that he was the Messiah. He taught how to hold authority. Well, Genesis 126 tells us that at the end of the sixth day, or toward the end of the sixth day of creation, God said, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. If God ever wanted man to have authority on the earth, he still wants man to have authority on the earth. He doesn't change. His will never changes. So what is Jesus teaching? He's teaching the will of God. He's teaching how to hold authority. Now, how does he teach, or what is the how to hold authority? Back up a few verses. Verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a, house, a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What is Jesus concluding this doctrine, this doctrinal teaching that they're astounded at? He's teaching that if you build the word of God into your life, into your spirit, into your inner man, it's like building your house upon a rock that the storms of life couldn't, couldn't cause to fall. In other words, how to hold authority, the doctrine that they're so amazed at, is very simple. Build the Word of God into your heart. Meditate in the Word of God. Speak God's Word, and don't let it depart from your lips. Because then you make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. Jesus isn't teaching that he has authority. He's teaching that man has authority, that they have authority. John chapter 15. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Folks, God wants supernatural things to happen to you more than you want supernatural things to happen to you. God wants miracles to be a part of your life more than you want miracles to be a part of your life. And he's glorified when we ask. Now, this word ask is often considered to, be, uh, to mean request, but that's not what this word means. This word means to call for or require. It's talking about praying it's talking about communicating with God from a position of, of authority. And not as some weak, sickly Christian here on the earth that's trying to get a handout from God. You were put on this earth for one reason. And that was to have authority in it. If you ask... If you abide in me and my words abide in you. He's saying if you've meditated in the word, if you've spoken the word, if you've built the word into your inner man, then you shall call for and require what you will and it shall be done unto you. Yeah, but what if somebody just calls for something stupid? Well, if the words are abiding in you, that's not going to be the, the, the process that somebody's going to take part in. If his words abide in you, you already know his will because his word is his will. And so you'll be asking for things that line up with God's plan for you in your life. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask, call for, require what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified. God wants your prayers answered. He wants you to have what you need in this earth. He wants you to live victorious. He wants you to live in abundance. He wants you to live healthy. 
Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Folks, you getting your prayers answered, you having what you need, not only glorifies God, but it shows his love towards you. It's amazing that what a lot of people consider to be arrogance is exactly what God talks about, what Jesus tells us about the operating in and dwelling in the love of God. The choice is ours. We can build our lives on the word and exercise authority therein. Or we can submit to the ideas that many churches and many Christians have that we're just here on this earth bouncing around like a ping pong ball hoping to find out what God's will is for our lives. God's will for our lives is exactly what Jesus said that it was. We have authority on this earth. We have the opportunity to live above lack and poverty, to live above sickness and disease. We have the authority to do as we will based on his word and to glorify him for it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And when we see your plan for our lives and what you will for our lives, it causes us to love you even more. Father, open our eyes to the truth. Open our eyes to see and understand the place that you've given to us to do the works of Jesus to walk in victory and to overcome every evil work Father let us be a people who speak your word And let us be a people who live in your perfect will. Father, we see how much you love us. We love you for what you've done for us. Show us, Father changes that we need to make show us father the end and the great magnitude of the authority that you've given us in Jesus name amen amen